I invite you to open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. As you're doing that, I want to remind you that after service, if you haven't already, you can pick up the annual report, um, a letter from myself, as well as updates from the committees and the finances you'll see in there. And so we invite you to do that. You also, if you came to the congregational meeting, you got that card that everybody could read so well that I had made. Well, I... I'm, it's fortunate that you weren't able to read it because the first date we're going to change. <laughs> um, we had a meal planned, and uh, we had that planned beforehand, but we found out that CrossNet um, has their banquet that same night, and so we're going to cancel ours because we want to encourage people to go to the CrossNet banquet, and some have and expressed that, and so we'll, we'll reschedule that, but I do want to mention that. But you'll find information about all the upcoming things in here in our annual congregational meeting report. Well, if you have your Bibles, it's Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law and that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all and who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we thank you that you have called us. And here we are to to hear you speak to us through your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider the gospel, as we consider proclaiming it, as we consider these words, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we would have understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the last in this sermon series on Each One Reach One, where I'm encouraging you to uh, invite others to the church and get to know them, have them at your house, um, uh, share with them your testimony, and and maybe even share the gospel with them at home, but then bring them out to church. And the reason I did this series, before we get into our our book-long series next, is that my heart's desire and prayer is that your heart's desire and prayer would be the same as Paul's heart's desire and prayer as we find it in verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer, Paul says, to God for them is that they may be saved. They, the the Jews, his brethren. His heart's desire, his, his very longing, his yearning was for the Jews to become believers. And if you're unsure how much Paul cared about that, for that desire for their salvation, you, you can read about it in chapter 9. 
Paul says there, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Uh, Paul sees the Jews that have rejected Christ up to this point, and he grieves over their present condition. He, he, he's in anguish. They are, they are lost. They are condemned. They are under the wrath of God, and, and it causes them great, great sorrow. He even goes so far to say, as we read, that he wishes he was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his lost kinsmen according to the flesh. And you think about that. He was willing to be damned if only his own people could be saved. And so what do we make of that? Of course he knows that's impossible. He just talked about it in Romans 8 that we can't be separated from God's love. He knows that that comment is hypothetical. It'll never happen. But what it's doing is it shows the intensity of his love for his people. He intensely loves them. The same intensity for the lost that you and I should have. The same desire that we should have. See, that's the posture we should take towards those who are unbelieving, those in the church and those outside the church. We have people outside the church that we may look upon in one instance as enemies. They're enemies of the cross. Paul talks about enemies of the cross. And there are those who maybe we have a political divide and we see all this anarchy. But one of the main things we're to think of and and feel as we consider those outside the church that don't know Christ is anguish for the fact that they, apart from Christ, will spend an eternity and eternal torment. That should be the first thing that comes to mind. It should drive us to our knees in prayer, pleading with God, save them. Save them. In this world, yes, they, they, they may be my enemy. They may be somebody that, that, that um, persecutes me. But Lord, save them from an eternity of hell. So that is the desire that must well up in our hearts when we come in contact with unbelieving neighbors, with unbelieving family members, uh, even friends. You know, many of us love the doctrines of grace. The doctrines that we find in Romans 9, um, particularly 8 and 10 and, and, and all through 11, we quote these verses often as Calvinists that uh, the, the Bible does indeed proclaim that God is sovereign in salvation. He decides who will be saved. It, it, we know that the Bible teaches election, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. It does teach a doctrine, a Calvinistic understanding of salvation in our terminology. That Calvin was following the scripture uh, that God has mercy on whomever he wills. Romans 9 says, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's his prerogative. And we recognize that if a person denies those doctrines that are difficult sometimes for us to grasp, that that, that they are at odds with the Apostle Paul, they're at odds with the Bible. And that is true. 
And so we need to take a stand on those doctrines. But it's just as true, and here's the point, that if we do not agonize over the fate of the lost, if we don't have a longing that they would be forgiven, if we do not desire and pray regularly for their salvation, then we're just as much at odds with Paul in the Bible as those who deny our doctrines of grace. In fact, what we do at that point is demonstrate that we don't understand or really believe the doctrines of grace that we proclaim. Uh, Legan Duncan says, if you really love those doctrines, and if you really understand those doctrines, you'll have a heart like Paul. You'll have a heart of grace. It, it, It won't be a small heart with no love and compassion. It'll be a heart which is large with grace because Calvinists ought to manifest grace as well as teach it. We ought to have more heart for the lost than anyone since we understand what we deserved was not grace but judgment. We ought to, alongside of our embrace of the doctrines of grace, we ought to manifest a heart of grace. And so if this is not your heart's desire in prayer, then you need to ask God, why? Why don't I have that passion that Paul has? You need to ask God to change your heart. That would be a great prayer and to be praying today. We all need to pray that our hearts as well as our doctrine are in line with the Scripture and the apostles' teaching. Last week I, I mentioned the role of testimonies. I talked to you about how you can share your testimony to get a hearing, maybe talk to somebody about their felt needs to get a hearing when you're witnessing to your friends. We need to build relationships with people, get to know them and and know what they believe and how they tick, as it were, so that we can communicate the gospel. However, as I said, sharing your testimony isn't the gospel. Right? It's not evangelizing yet. It's kind of a pre-evangelism. Biblical evangelism uh, takes place when the evangel, the good news, of the gospel is proclaimed after it's shared. Then you evangelize. And so this week, as we close out this series, I want to look at Romans 10, and I want you to see the gospel message that we are called to share with our family and friends, our acquaintances, after we've maybe shared our testimony, after maybe we've gotten to know them a little better. Uh, But the gospel that we're going to share, if we believe and desire to see them come to Christ for salvation. See, what I want you to do is to imagine with me, as you were, uh, as it is, that you're trying to witness to someone, and maybe you've asked this question before. If God were to ask you why I should let you into heaven, you say, what would you say? You ask them that. What would you say? How do you think most people would answer? Well, most people, from my experience, answer that question. It always has to do with good works. And they may begin with, I'm a pretty good person, right? That, or maybe they will list for you some of the good things they have done uh, as a response. And, and, and that is a common answer. We hear this thing about God, and we imagine even unbelievers, most of the time, imagine them to be perfect, and they kind of know they're not, but they say, well, I'm not as bad as this guy, right? I, I, you know, I, I've done this, I've done that. And so we, they have this works mentality. And Paul addresses that in our passage. 
He has an answer for those who think they can earn their salvation by establishing their own righteousness. And see, when you list a, a list of accomplishments, a list of things that you can do before God to merit your salvation, you believe that you can attain righteousness by doing good things. And we know that God expects perfect righteousness, and so we try to do these things to attain that. And that is true. But before Paul addresses that, he addresses another response that you often hear, particularly in America, uh, if you ever watched an Oprah Winfrey conversation on religion, you would hear this, is this issue of sincerity. Well, these people are sincere. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're sincere. They, they have a, they're zealous for God, Paul says. But it's not according to knowledge. See, Americans generally, and I can't speak for other countries, but America generally believes that as long as you're sincere in your religion, it doesn't matter what religion it is. As long as your intentions are good, it doesn't matter. If you're seeking God in your own way with your candles or whatever it is you do at home through uh, yoga or all this meditation, if you're sincere, well, surely God will accept you. I mean, all roads lead to God is the mentality. And the Apostle Paul has something to say about that belief. He says, zeal is of no value unless it's according to knowledge. And by according to knowledge, obviously, he means according to the Word of God, according to Scripture. God will not accept you just because you were sincere in your belief. A person may be a sincere Buddhist. They may be a sincere Muslim. They may be a sincere religious Jew, as we find here in our passage, a sincere Jehovah Witness, for example. Uh, they may be sincere and zealous for the God that they kind of created in their mind that they think exists, and, and they really want to follow him, and, and all this may end up making them a better person. It really may. Uh, it, it may make them a kind and loving to others. And unfortunately, for some in these other religions, they're more loving and kind than Christians are sometimes. It's unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the reality. It, it, it may help them, you know, like AA, just believe in a God to help them get over addiction. All wonderful things. It will not save them. It'll just make the road to hell more pleasant while you're here on earth. See, we Americans, I'm sure others do it as well, but Americans often value our experience over what the Scripture says. We often value enthusiasm over right teaching. But Paul is saying that it's the prerogative of God to say how we must approach Him. It's up to God. We cannot make it up as we go along. The Jews were sincere. They were zealous. They, they desired to follow God. You know, we usually look at the Pharisees as the villains in the Scripture, and obviously they were. But understand, they were the ones that were sitting in the pews. They didn't have pews, but you get my point. Yeah, they were the ones that were religious. They, they truly wanted to follow God. They wanted to know God. They desired to please God but they misunderstood the Scripture. Well, God wouldn't hold them accountable 
Well, what does Paul say? For being ignorant of the righteous God and seeking to establish them, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They completely misunderstood how righteousness is attained. And attaining righteousness is necessary for our salvation. They tried to establish their own righteousness rather than to submit to God's righteousness. They were sincere in their attempt. They even had some scripture they thought backed them up, but they were sincerely wrong. And so we need to remember that sincerity will save no one. And that leads to the most popular response to the gospel. God will accept me because of my effort. You know, God will accept me because of the righteousness I can attain by keeping the law. I'm going to do enough good things. Paul, as we saw, is concerned for the Jews. He, he, he wants them saved. So he labors here in verses 4 to 7 to, uh, to show that their attempts to establish their own righteousness is actually turning out to be a rejection of, of Jesus Christ and God's righteousness. Now, what he does is he sets up two contrasts, a two-part contrast, salvation by Christ on the one hand and salvation by your own efforts. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, that's one of the most disputed passages in the whole Bible. Uh, the word end can mean end in the sense of goal or completion, which would mean the law pointed to Christ, that he, he fulfilled it, it brought it to completion. Or it can mean end in the sense of termination or conclusion, which would mean that Christ has abrogated the law, he did away with it for righteousness. And both are true. Christ has indeed fulfilled the law, and he is the goal of the law. The law points us to Christ. But the second meaning is what Paul has in mind here. Paul is saying, in respect to salvation, Christ and the law are incompatible alternatives. They are mutually exclusive. Christ's saving work has brought to a close any attempt to attain righteousness by way of the law. And Paul establishes this by quoting Moses. You remember when we talked about the Pharisees, how they, they said, well, we believe Moses, not this sinner, Christ. Well, Paul's going to go to Moses, and he's going to improve his point. First, he quotes from Leviticus 18.15. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What he's saying is, he does, he says this also in Galatians, um, he quotes this passage again, is that you cannot be saved by works of the law. You cannot be saved by adding works of the law to faith, and you cannot be saved by adding faith to works of the law. You cannot add faith to cover up your deficiency in keeping good deeds. And so any attempt to obtaining righteousness before God by doing works or adding works is futile. That's what Paul's getting at. Let me put it a different way. Uh, Paul, in one sense, hypothetically speaking, is setting up two options for you for salvation. Here they are. I want to give you them both. You can pick one. One by works of the law and one by faith. Leviticus says, if you keep the law, you will receive life. Oh, so I just have to keep the law. But here's the problem. None of us keep the law. 
It's not just talking about doing a little bit better than that other person. It's talking about keeping the law perfectly. God is perfect. And so he expects you to keep that law perfectly. And not just here, but in your heart, you have to keep it perfectly. What does that mean? That means that I broke the law of God about 100 times driving in the church this morning. Just with my wandering thoughts. Maybe angry at somebody that was on the road that I didn't like the way they were driving. You fill in the blank. We break the law, and so the law only brings a curse to us. It only brings death. Not because there was anything wrong with the law. There wasn't. It's God's law. Because there's something wrong with us. That's the issue. And see, if you were to try to attain righteousness by turning to the law, if, if Christ did not save you from the curse of the law, you'd be dead in your sins. Which Paul says in Galatians, after quoting that Leviticus passage, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. And see, it's in that way that Christ is the end of the law. Righteousness is not now, not ever, found by law-keeping. It's, it's impossible to be saved by works of the law. Our, our righteousness is only based on faith. And that's the point Paul's going to make in verses 6 and 7. Here he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Um, he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, and who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, if you're like me, these words are a little strange. I mean, nobody's thought that, right? I want to be saved. Um, but Paul is, what he's doing, he's borrowing from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. It's not a direct quote. He, he's, it's a paraphrase of it. He's using the language of the Old Testament passage to make a New Testament truth or point. And here's the point. He's setting forth two ideas that represent impossibilities. That is how the phrases are used. Everyone says this. The expressions about ascending into heaven to bring Christ down and descending into the abyss to bring Christ up are proverbial expressions for what he's clear, what's clearly impossible. He's saying, look, it's just as impossible for a person to be saved by works as if you were able to say, you know what, I need Christ. I'm going to reach up into heaven and pull him down myself, or I need Christ to raise from the grave, so I'm going to reach down, dig him up, and do it myself. We cannot do that. We're unable to do that. Only God can do that. God, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so God did what we cannot do. Only God, the omnipotent God, can send his son from heaven. Only the omnipotent God can raise him from the dead. And God did it. It's impossible for us to do that. And see, now that God has done what is impossible for our salvation, it's not beyond our reach. Uh, one writer said, salvation is not a matter of hoisting yourself up to heaven and getting Christ and bringing him to earth. It's not a matter of going down into the grave to dig Jesus up and bring him back to life. It's not through any works that you may try to accomplish. It's through faith. 
And that's the point Paul goes on to make by referring again to Deuteronomy 30. Look at verse 8. What does it say? That is, what does the righteousness based on faith say? The word is near you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, the, you see the contrast? In, in stark contrast to the impossibility of you reaching up to heaven and pulling Christ down or reaching down in the grave and raising him up, for the contrast here is that the gospel, the, the righteousness that is by faith, is, is not beyond your reach. R.C. Sproul says the central truth of justification by faith alone that we all teach here is not so high and so abstract or deep or profound to be beyond your understanding. Paul says here, it's near you. It's near you. That expression that the gospel is near you is is actually a Hebrew idiom, meaning that it's within your grasp. It's right in front of you. The word of faith is simple. Understanding the doctrine of salvation by faith is not a difficult thing. It's profound. It's glorious. We can't believe it apart from God, but it's, it's not difficult to understand. Even a child can grasp the good news of the gospel. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul boils it down for us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and and is saved. That's the content of our faith. That's the message. There it is right there. It's a summary statement. There's so much more. Paul talks about justification and all these other uh, doctrines, but that's the content of our faith. And, And it's a faith, if you notice, that affects both our hearts and our mouths. The heart is the seat of man's very being. It's the the seat of his emotions, his will, his intellect. That's what it means by heart. It it doesn't mean the organ. I had a student at another church that asked if if I get a heart transplant, will I lose Jesus? Constantly said, Jesus in your heart, you know, accept Jesus in your heart. They took it literal. What if I get rid of my heart? It's not talking about that. It's talking about your inner being. They didn't understand. We had to explain it. The mouth is the practical outpouring of the heart. It tells us what the heart is doing. What did Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we believe in our heart, if, if we have the knowledge of Christ in our heart, then we will confess it. It will come out of our mouth. Our belief will be displayed through our mouth confession. Now, let me be clear. It's not enough to just say, uh, just confess. You must believe what you are confessing with your heart. Now, true saving faith has three aspects to it. There's content. We just talked about the content, what Christ has accomplished. And then there's assent to the content. What do I mean? Well, that's the content being presented. I believe that content. That happened, that's true. But there's a third aspect that we often forget, and that is placing your trust in that content. All three are necessary. In the book of James, James tells us, the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19. Did demons trust Jesus for salvation? No. They know it's true, 
They, they know the content of the gospel. They assent to it, but they don't trust it for their salvation. And so that's true with everyone. If you know the gospel and you even acknowledge it's true, there are people who believe, yeah, I believe Jesus raised from the grave. And there's, you know, someday we'll be able to explain it scientifically. They, they don't assent to its truth. If you know the gospel and even acknowledge it's true, you're still not saved. Churches are full of people like this, unfortunately. I pray it's not true here, but I fear that there's always someone who, who knows the truth. They've grown up with it. They know the story of, of Christmas. They know the story of Easter. They, they know the Bible. They know the truth. They give assent to it. Yes, it, it fits my life. I, you know, I don't make a big thing out of it, but it's part of my life. But they haven't actually trusted in that truth alone for salvation. You see this when you talk to people about giving their testimony. And you say, how do you know you're a believer? And they are a believer. I'm a, uh, let's assume they're a believer. And their first instinct is to always say what they do. They're good works. Um, and, and so uh, you must put your trust in the gospel to be saved. That's what Paul means when he says, believe and confess. Put your trust in the gospel. If you don't trust the gospel, let me put it this way, in accordance to the scripture in James, if you don't trust the gospel, but know it and kind of believe it's true, you're no different than demons. That's what Paul, or that's what James teaches us. Now notice what is described as the two essential elements which must be believed and must be confessed. You must believe and confess Jesus is Lord. That is, it's impossible to overestimate how important that is, how significant those words are. It's two words in the Greek. And the early church died for making that confession. Jesus is Lord. Now, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, it's a confession that no one can truly say except by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, except in the Holy Spirit. Paul's not saying people can't say the words, obviously. I could run out to someone, put a gun to their head and say, Jesus, say Jesus is Lord, and I'll say Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean that they just confessed Christ. The words is not enough. What Paul's getting at is something deeper. He's saying a person can't say it from the heart and mean it with all its implications, but by the Holy Spirit revealing those truths to him. You cannot discover the truth about Jesus by human discovery. You, you won't be able to. It is something that must be revealed by God. And when we understand its meaning, we understand why. The word here translated Lord is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe Yahweh. In the book of Romans, Paul uses the word Lord 45 times, 44 times that is. In 30 cases, he's talking about Jesus. In, in eight cases, he's talking about God the Father. In the remaining cases, he's talking about Jesus and God the Father. Obviously, in other words, what Paul is doing is applying the Old Testament understanding of Yahweh and saying Jesus is Yahweh. He's claiming that Jesus is complete deity, that he is God. And so to confess Jesus as Lord is first to confess him to be God. And so you are confessing that he is your master, you're confessing that he is your king. 
You're confessing that he rules over the church and he rules over your life. You're confessing that he rules your mind and your ethics and your career and your decisions. You're, you're confessing that you're in charge. You are the master of my whole life. You're a master of my relationships. You see, beloved, you cannot have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. And we cannot water down the gospel just so people will believe something about Jesus. We must confess to people that the Christ we are calling them to, to believe in, it, 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 it will settle for nothing less than complete rule over their life. It's not just raise your hand on a Sunday and just have some fire insurance. It is trusting him completely. No one can call themselves a Christian who does not acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of their life. Now, there is another, another implication here of the title Lord. It means that he's Savior. And John Stott explains this. He says, the title Lord is, the sim- is a symbol of Christ's victory over the forces of evil. And, and he has conquered them on the cross. And so when we call him Lord and he conquered the forces of evil, we're saying that our salvation, our rescue from sin, our rescue from Satan, our rescue from death is due to that victory that Christ accomplished as Lord on the cross. And see, that leads to the second element that we must confess and believe, that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection proves many things. It, it, it proves that there's a God. And that God of the Bible is the true God. That's what settles it. It proves that Jesus was a teacher sent from God and spoke the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He predicted he would resurrect. He resurrected. Ultimately, it proves that God accepted his sacrifice and, and for sin and that it, in him alone is our salvation. See, the resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work of his son on the cross. See, to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe that Jesus died. And not only that he died, but that he died for our sins. It is one thing to say that Jesus died. I've told you, there are professors that will say, yeah, Jesus died and rose again. I don't know how it happened. It's quite another, though, to confess that he did it with a doctrinal purpose. He did it with a theological purpose. He did it to be my substitute, to take my sin upon himself. That he, he raised from the grave, yes, but not just that. He raised for my justification. He, that is Jesus, Paul says, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It had a meaning. The resurrection is God's final stamp of approval upon Jesus as our Lord and Messiah. That's why Paul says, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. If you put your trust in him from the heart, if you call on his name, you have no need to feel any shame. Not now, not for all eternity. Your sins have been covered you're, you're, you've been forgiven of your sins, and, and you have been covered by the blood of Christ. What does Scripture say? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And that is true for everyone that's going to believe. Paul says it here, for there's no distinction, verse 12, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so what does it mean? The call in the name of the Lord. You can't just say the name. We learn that. So what does it mean? Here's what Paul says. That you have given up your vain attempts to attain your own righteousness. To call on the Lord means that you're going to stop trying to earn or merit before God righteousness. It means you have taken God at his word and acknowledged that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I can't do it on my own. I acknowledge when I say he is Lord that he is the only way of salvation. It means that you have surrendered your whole being to God and trusted Jesus Christ alone as Lord as well as Savior. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't hold on to things. The point is that I acknowledge that he is Lord of my life. It means that you accept that Jesus' work on the cross and his glorious resurrection are sufficient to save you from your sin. And that through him you have attained righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. That means it's, it's a righteousness outside of myself that, that God gives me through Christ. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Have you done that? Have you done Have you cried out to God confessing your need for Jesus alone? If not, if you're here and you have it, it don't, don't be embarrassed. Believe. If you're watching and listening and, and you say, I'm not sure I've heard this gospel that pre- preached this way. This is what the Bible teaches. Believe. Your works will not save you. You will not attain righteousness that way. It can only come through Christ. They will not atone for your sin, your works. Jesus and Jesus alone can cleanse you from within. And so you call upon him now, and you can be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel. So that's the message. That's what you're to be sharing with people. Not all the details, maybe, of course, and you may start with the basics, but that's it. That's what you share. You must believe in order to be saved. But there's still one last thing. I close with this very quickly. It is you. See, what does Paul say here? It's you, the herald. We need someone to proclaim this message. Paul says in verse 14 and 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God saves and God alone saves. But he saves through the proclamation of the message. The other day I was following, I enjoy streamers, watching, it's called content creators, and they create things on YouTube or another thing called Twitch, doesn't matter what it is. A person was on there, very popular um, in, in the social media world, millions and millions of followers on Instagram. I know that means almost nothing to most of you, uh, but the point is very popular, and popular for reasons that we probably wouldn't uh, accept as Christian. And she got converted. And she was on with thousands of people watching her. And it it was recommended to me. And and then the title was something about Jesus is Lord or Jesus has got my whole life. However, uh, a a young millennial would say it. It was a young girl. I, I tuned in. She had her Bible open in front of her. And she was sharing what Christ did for her. Thousands of people. I'll never, I, I won't preach to as many people she had the opportunity to share the gospel with. And, and she's on there. That's what Paul's getting at. 
That message of what Christ can do in your life has to be proclaimed. Christ sends heralds. Yes, preachers like me to preach the gospel, but he heralds, what, are they, what do we do? What's my calling? It's to preach the gospel. What's your calling is he sends you out to preach the gospel. And people hear the gospel. And hearers who believe the gospel and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ are saved. That's the process. And so the question is, if you've called on Christ for your own salvation... Will you accept your Lord's call to proclaim that salvation? If you recognize the mercy of God in saving you, will your heart's desire and passion be to see others saved as well? And if so, are you willing to proclaim that message? Will you now desire and pray, as Paul says, for the salvation of the lost? Let's pray now. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we hear this message and we may even doubt we're saved ourselves because we know that passion doesn't lie within us naturally. And so we ask, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we would have a a passion, a desire uh, for others to know the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.